Let us be silent and settle in as Jamie plays the prelude. He'll be playing the prelude in B-flat major by Bach. Tena koto tefano o Unitarians Otamaki Makoto. Tena koto na managiri. No mai hari mai me kitene fare karakia o te atua. Ko Ted Zorn toko ingwa. Ko Charleston, South Carolina, USA. Aho. Ko Cooper River te awa. Ke Tamaki Makoto. Aho e noho ana. No reira e roranga tirama. Tena koto. Welcome all, church fanau and visitors, to this place of worship, virtual and physical, a space made sacred by us coming together and made sacred by Auckland Unitarians for 122 years. Welcome to those joining us remotely, uh, to those here in the building, and to those watching the recording at a later time. If you're a visitor here for the first time, Thank you for choosing to be here with us. If you are a member or regular attendee, thank you for returning to join together in our free and responsible search for truth and meaning. For those here in person, you're all invited to join us for a cup of tea or coffee afterwards. It is our sacrament of hospitality. Consider this time together a sanctuary for the soul, a haven of peace and hope, it is a time to reflect on what it means to be human, what it means to be connected to our fellow humans, 
and how we spend our time and energy and gifts on this earth. My name is Ted Zorn, and I'll be leading our service today with the theme of A Rose by Any Other Name is Not a Rose, Part Two. <laughs> it is about the power of naming. My opening words are by Katie Kandarian Morris. Here we have come to this sacred space, quieter now with our readiness. Hushed voices, hoping, trusting for so many things. For connection, for communion. For inspiration, for information. For healing and for wholeness. For words, for music, for celebration and consolation. Here we have come into this space bringing all of who we are. Let us be willing, however we are changed. We light the candle in this large goblet that we call a chalice, a name associated with sacredness and tradition, a name that brings to mind the Christian heritage from which Unitarian Universalism emerged. For us today, it symbolizes who we are as a community, our quest to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person, our desire to illuminate our path forwards on a tr uh, search for free and responsible search for truth and meaning, the fire of our commitment to justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, and warmth to the connections we form with each other, with all of humanity, and with the interdependent web of all existence of which we are all a part. Um, we will now recite the, the covenant from the church, if you wish. I invite you to, to join with me um, in reciting the words of the covenant. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest for truth is the sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve humankind in fellowship, to the end that all souls shall grow in harmony. Thus do we covenant with each other and with the crowd. At this time, Jamie will play a special selection for us on our wonderfully renewed and um, ready to go organ. And Jamie will tell us what he's going to play for us. Hi, hello. I will be doing a fugue from Bach's Prelude and Fugue in B minor, BWV544.
For this morning's reading, I've chosen Hello, My Name Is by Naomi King. On the back of a pink MacBook, a name tag says, Hello, I am, dot, dot, dot. And written in below is the word enough. When we introduce ourselves, ourselves to another person, we usually extend our hand and summarize ourselves with one word, usually, hello, my name is Naomi. These are the, the kinds of face-to-face -face greetings that initiate relationships, that open our hearts and act as a bridge of connection from one person to the next. But there's another kind of one-word naming that goes on in our larger society that burns bridges locks down relationships and keeps us from living our promises to each other. We know these words. These are not words I need to repeat here, for repeating them simply gives them more power. But they're the more horrible terms equivalent to shark and monster and demon. These are the words denying inherent integrity, or sorry, inherent dignity. These are the words that undermine and attack inherent worth. For these words have one powerful, hurtful message. You are not worthy. You are not human. You are not enough. Throughout my life, I've had plenty of those words, those labels ascribed to me. So many that although I stretch out my hand and say, hello, my name is Naomi, what I feel I'm saying is, hello, I'm worthless. Hello, I'm bad and wrong. I came into our religious community because we promised to counter those messages. I am part of a religious community because we promise not to reduce each other to terrible labels, not to strip each other of our humanity, not to ascribe levels of worthiness to one another. Most of us need to celebrate life, to feel our inherent worth, to be restored in our dignity, to practice justice, equity, and compassion in human relationships. Most of us yearn to say, hello, I am somebody, and to, be greet and to be greeted, hello, somebody, welcome, we're glad you're here. Most of us hunger for affirmation and celebration in who we are and in the gifts and blessings we bring to this world. Most of us come here to be greeted as loving, generous, compassionate people we are. Each of us has at least one blessing, I believe each of us offers many blessings to this world in who we are. But sometimes we and our world, even our beloved community, might have a difficult time affirming and seeing those blessings. We are all blessings to this world. Our work of building bridges of connection by finding and naming and affirming those blessings, we are, is the work of nurturing our spirits and healing our world. I've entitled my talk today, A Rose by Any Other Name, Part Two. I've always had a thing for language. I think I inherited that from my dad. Dad was not highly educated nor widely read. Uh, the only magazines he ever subscribed to were Reader's Digest and TV Guide. And I never knew him to read a novel, but he loved to play with language. He often used words that were either made up or some version of a word he'd learned while serving overseas in the military. He would latch on to words and phrases that were new to him. When he came to New Zealand to visit for the first time, the term flatmate caught his eye. It's not a term used in the USA. 
So for his remaining years, he referred to my daughter, his granddaughter, as my little Kiwi American flatmate. In fact, he had nicknames for just about everyone, uh, or at least everyone he liked. Um, the nicknames were not all flattering. He had two nicknames for me. One was number one son, which he used quite a lot. Unfortunately, his other nickname, which was used equally often, was Stinky. Both names came from being the firstborn child. As the oldest, I was the number one son, but also mine were apparently the first nappies he had ever changed. <laughs> I'm sure my inherited love of language from dad was a big part of why I majored in, in English literature at university and then specialized in communication in my postgraduate studies and in my career. So thanks for the love of language, dad. Next week is Father's Day and I'll thank you for more than that, uh, even if one result was that particular nickname. The part two in, my, in the title of my talk today will ring a bell for some of you. Uh, in early December last year, Clay entitled a talk, A Rose by Any Other Name is Not a Rose. So this is the sequel. He talked about the power of naming and especially about how we Auckland Unitarians have struggled and, and continue to struggle with what we call ourselves and what we call this building in which we meet. My focus today is also on the power of naming, but I want to focus on some other ways and some other reasons that uh, naming plays out in our lives. Clay mentioned seven reasons we name things. We name to identify, symbolize, describe, refer, simplify, organize, and tame. I want to talk about three that are not on that list, although you could argue that they're implied. Specifically, we also name to connect, to divide, and to heal. One of the important ways we use names is to connect with others. We are Auckland Unitarians. We may at, time, at times debate what we want to call ourselves, but for now, the simple statement, we are Auckland Unitarians, unites us in the same way that calling ourselves Kiwis unites us as a nation. These names are part of our collective identity. So they bond us together as individuals with a shared identity. They also are part of my and your personal identity. In workplaces, people get a sense of identity and often a sense of belonging and pride from the name of their work team. Many organizations are aware of this and they give their work teams creative names to evoke a sense of interest, energy, and, and pride. So at Massey University now, our human resources department is called People and Culture. A colleague who is in charge of a part of a human resources department at another organization is called Head of Bench Strength, which was explained to me as analogous to building up the strength of the backup players on a sports team, the bench. A colleague at a consulting firm is called Head of Evolution because his unit focuses on organizational change. So teams at many workplaces are encouraged to give each other creative nicknames, sometimes a fun nickname to promote bonding and identification. My dad intuitively understood the power of naming to connect. In calling you a nickname, he communicated that you were special to him, even if in some cases, uh, as such as mine, the nickname wasn't so flattering. 
There's not a lot of research on pet names in romantic relationships, but, but there is some, and what it suggests is that couples who have pet names for each other generally are more satisfied in their relationships. Nicknames and pet names often serve to enhance our bonds. But of course, we also use names to hurt and to, and to divide. Names have been used throughout the ages to denigrate, control, and marginalize groups by race, gender, and sexuality, uh, among others. A few of those names have such power we don't even say them, even when quoting someone else. Here's an important caution about naming, though. Culture, context, and timing, including not just when in the course of a conversation you use a name, but the broader sense of the historical time, the historical era in which we live compared to previous eras. All those are crucial for understanding names and their power. And, and that's true for all communication. So if you decide to start calling me stinky, I doubt if I'm going to welcome it. I didn't exactly encourage that in my dad, but it had a loving connotation in the context of our lives. I'm getting choked up about dad. <laughs> so I look at it with love and humor now, as I did then. What, in, what <clears throat> excuse me. What a name means and how it is interpreted in one context can mean something completely different in another context or in another culture or another era. Even if the root language is, for example, English, the language itself changes and interpretation of words change over time and place. As an example, I doubt if any of the men in here would be offended if I walk up to a group of you and said, hello boys or if I said to you individually, there's my boy. You would probably see it as a term of familiarity, friendship, or endearment. But one of my most horrifying early work experiences was with that term boy. I was working at a supermarket in my hometown of Charleston, South Carolina in the US. The Deep South, the place where, the town where the Civil War began in the US. I was 16 and had only been working there for a short time when the owner of the supermarket, a 70-ish white man, said to me, I want you to drive this boy to his house. I looked around and the only other person standing there was an old, somewhat frail, slightly bent black man who had been doing some cleaning in the store. I had heard, my, I had heard black boys my age say, don't call me boy, but never really understood the history or the power of that name until that moment. Even as a young white kid growing up in the redneck South, my heart hurt for the humiliation that old man must have felt in that moment and in a lifetime of being called boy and worse and not having the power to respond. While I'm on the issue of context, that research on pet names that I mentioned in regards to couples uh, suggests that it only serves to bond when both partners embrace the name. Sometimes we give each other nicknames to hurt or insult. I had a friend once who referred to his wife as Death Woman because she was so often sick in the years before she discovered her gluten intolerance. Clearly not a name that she embraced and not surprisingly, they're not together anymore. But names that start out hurtful can sometimes be reappropriated or reclaimed the word queer is one of those. 
It was often used in the past to insult or demean, but it has been reclaimed in recent decades as a source of pride and as a critical and political identity that challenges traditional notions of sexuality and gender. Queer theory has emerged as an important perspective in the humanities and social sciences, alongside other perspectives such as feminist theory and, critical, and other critical theories. Finally, I want to talk about naming to heal. The idea of naming to heal or to restore a sense of well-being is not new. Growing up Catholic, I was taught that the path to redemption was in naming or confessing my sins. Unfortunately, I'm not sure I ever felt better after confession. I usually ended up feeling worse for confessing only the sins I was prepared to say out loud. But despite confession not working out for me, the idea of naming as a way to heal is still a powerful idea. Many of us have been taught not to acknowledge feelings, much less to name them. Harden up is a common refrain in New Zealand, especially for Kiwi boys and men. Typically that means don't complain, get over it, or don't express any emotion that might be taken as weakness. Maybe it's no surprise that in the most recent year for which there are statistics, 75% of the suicides in New Zealand were males. Construction was the sector with the highest rate of suicides, followed closely by farming and forestry, all sectors that are dominate, dominated by men. Follow-up research found that people in the construction sector who were interviewed attributed the high rate of suicide to a macho, bullying, homophobic culture. Interviewees said phrases like, take a concrete pill and harden up, were common. But avoiding emotional expression is not just an issue for blue-collar jobs. Studies show that people associate, that what people associate with being professional is closely tied up with controlled or masked displays of emotion or outright suppression of emotions. I have lived most of my life cultivating a calm exterior. And being able to maintain that calm demeanor in the face of others' expression of anger, angst, or hurt has actually served me well in my career. People have told me on occasions how I helped calm a difficult situation or that my sense of calm gave them confidence that things were going to be okay. That sense of measured calm, meaning masking or suppressing strong emotions, is a skill mastered by many people who assume, assume leadership roles. But recently, I have wondered what the cost of that has been for me. I learned to hold back anger, hurt, and frustration, not only at work, but from the people I loved. So my skill allowed me to be dishonest, missing the opportunity to meet my needs and to connect honestly. And I believe the bottled up emotion contributed to self-destructive behaviors. Much of what I have learned in recent years through counseling and through my work with the Essentially Men organization has been to acknowledge and name emotions. The German author Hermann, excuse me, Hermann Hesse said, everything becomes a little different as soon as it is spoken out loud. That is certainly my experience. Talking about what I'm experiencing in a safe environment 
naming the difficult emotions I'm feeling and exploring what's behind them has been life-changing. Allowing myself to be vulnerable and share pain, anger, and sadness has enabled me to connect with others, especially men, in a way that I've never experienced before. In a New York Times article, the, the writer Tony Schwartz said, emotions are just a form of energy, forever seeking expression. Paradoxically, sharing what we're feeling in simple terms helps us to better contain and manage even the most difficult emotions. By naming them out loud, we are effectively taking responsibility for them, making it less likely they will spill out at the expense of others over the course of a day. Part of the value of knowing and expressing what we're feeling, rather than keeping feelings bottled up, is that naming our emotions tends to diffuse their charge and lessen the burden that they create. But unfortunately, most of us are not very good at that. Marshall Rosenberg, the leader of the nonviolent communication movement, said that most of, us, most of us lack an emotional language, and so we struggle to acknowledge and name our emotions. One of my essentially men friends who is trained in nonviolent communication has been bringing feelings cards to our men's group meetings. They're just like playing cards, but they have a a word that represents a feeling or a, or a need on each of them. We have found these helpful in overcoming our lack of emotional vocabulary. Just by sorting through and selecting cards that fit, we can often home in on what we're experiencing and talk, and talk about what's behind the feelings. This isn't just pop psychology. Multiple studies have shown that what's called affect labeling, that is, naming your feelings, not only results in people saying they feel better, but actually changes brain activity in a way similar to other tried and tested techniques that lessen anxiety. It also has been shown to lessen the behavioral effects of anxiety, reducing agitation, reducing restlessness, and reducing being easily distracted. So, as Clay said in part one, Shakespeare was wrong. It does matter what we call things. It also matters that we call things, that we name things. As the eminent rhetorical scholar Kenneth Burke put it, humans are, humans are the symbol using animal. Naming things, using those wonderful symbols called words, is a big part of what makes us human. Among other things, our naming of things, and especially our naming of ourselves, each other and our experiences creates the potential for us to connect and heal. It is now time to extinguish the chalice. Call on the other Chris. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Thanks. Chris Chris calls is not the other Chris. He's 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 Chris in and of himself. <laughs> It is, uh, please join me uh, as we say the words for extinguishing the chalice which John has put on the screen. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These are in our hearts until we are together again. My closing words are as follows. We leave at the end of this service, but the connections we name remain with us. 
our connection to this congregation that we call Auckland Unitarians, our connection to this building that we call a church, albeit not without some members cringing, our connection to the individuals whose names we know well and others we have heard but may have forgotten, but whose smiles or warmth uh, or eyes remain with us, and still others whose names we may be yet to learn. Finally, our connection to the values and commitments that we have named as reasons that we come together. May those connections named and unnamed give us strength and courage until we come together again. So discussion time, we're now going to spend a few minutes in uh, discussion groups. Uh, so we're asking those of you in the church to, to form groups of no more than six. Clay could possibly be watching, so we need to keep, keep them small. And as usual, John will put the, those of you on Zoom in one or two groups. I usually like one if there's, uh, because some people will leave. Uh, but for those of you on Zoom, if that's not you, this would be an appropriate time to say goodbye and to, to exit. So our question to get the discussion started, as you see, what is your experience of naming to connect? to divide or, or to heal. Which I'm just interested in your own experience just as a discussion starter. Um, and we'll go from there. 